No, that was just the beginning. And she opened the door for us to one other information. And I'm curious about communications between the Biden transition team and for that matter, the White House, once Biden was in office uh, and the CDC, as it related to the teachers unions demands, if you will, or requests. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And thanks for listening to Flyover Country. I am Scott Jennings alongside Joe Arnold, and this is a special edition of the Flyover Country podcast because we are joined by Congressman Brad Winstrup of Ohio. Congressman, thanks for being with us. Glad to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, you and I crossed paths years ago in 2012 when you got elected to Congress the first time. I was trying to elect Mitt Romney. You were trying to get elected to Congress, and you were more successful than I was. But I remember at the time being uh, eminently uh, impressed with you. And your career in Washington has been uh, really distinguished, I think, uh, since you got there. So congratulations on all your success. And and uh, we want to talk about some of the things you've gotten into recently in holding uh, certain people accountable uh, as part of your role on this uh, special COVID committee. But before we start, Joe, we'd like to do a little news of the day because obviously uh, our country's uh, uh, dealing with a, a near crisis of a, uh, in our financial system. We're recording this at two twenty-two p.m. Eastern time. You know this this is all dynamic, so the news might be changing by the time we even hear this. But Congressman, where are we? With the debt ceiling negotiations uh, in, in Louisville, we should say this morning, the Republican leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, said he's confident. He said this is going to get done. Uh, it, the, the news that we're reading out of Washington is not quite as optimistic. Where are you on this? Well, I, you know, look at the fact that the president said he wasn't going to negotiate at all, and now he is. So that that to me is a good first step. And you know, Kevin McCarthy is is a good negotiator in my mind, and uh, Biden claims to be. So uh, we'll see. And they have an opportunity to really do something here. I've said from the very beginning, it's completely reasonable that if you're going to pay your bills and you've been overspending, that you discuss how you can reduce some of your spending, and that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And that's why we passed our bill in the House of Representatives a while back. I think we'll make some progress. I don't know that it'll be this week, to be honest with you. Maybe next week. And there are certainly opportunities to pay uh, the interest on our debt, which is the number one thing that we have to do. Money is still coming into the federal government. So uh, I think that things uh, I feel confident. I think that things will get done. I don't know if it'll be this Friday. Uh, because Kevin McCarthy said we're going to stick to the 72-hour rule. So we have, <clears throat> have to keep that in mind as well. What are you hearing from your constituents back home? I mean, the, you know, to hear Biden and the Democrats tell it, everybody's going to, you know, the country's going to essentially come to a halt if we make even modest reductions in federal spending. But what are your constituents telling you about that? My hunch is uh, they like where the Republicans are more than where the Democrats are on it. Yeah, that's definitely my district for sure. And so when I go back home, uh, what I keep hearing is stay strong. This has to be done for the future of the country. We have to start reining in our spending. And they felt the effects of the spending with inflation. So everyone wants something to change in that regard. And they also have seen the time and time again, the United States of America, you know, pays their bills. We always do. And uh, sooner or later, it gets done. And for those that have been around this a while, you know that it gets done. But 
but there is a thing called negotiations and and actually what we're doing i guess some call it playing politics i call it governing and we're doing the best we can to govern and the house of representatives has done their part uh, and laid out the first volley now it's up to the to the president of the united states to engage the other breaking news today congressman winstrup is certainly dealing with your a position with the select uh, subcommittee on um, the coronavirus pandemic, as Scott mentioned before, uh, both of you had the uh, the experience of being able to question Randy Weingarten, Scott on CNN, and you, of course, in that subcommittee. In fact, before we go to this, if I could just hear one clip, if we could, Jared, just for, to remind folks of Congressman Winstrup and, so, and how this Q and A went between he and the AFT president. Oh, uh, two of the proposed changes, right? work from home options for teachers with high risk conditions, and that if a new variant arose that the guidance may need to be changed. Well, they, so with that, and, and again, <clears throat> yes or no, were these proposals accepted by the CDC? Well, the one proposal that was accepted during the, if I may explain, during the, 20, the meeting on the 29th, we raised several different issues. We did not, we had seen all the former Were they Trump accepted guidance. or not? I mean, what it's, was, a, it's, a, it's a question. When right. you made these proposals, the two I, I suggested, were they accepted by the CDC? The proposal to okay. have So the yes or no here we're looking for here, it, it, it was difficult. It was, first of all, before we get to, your, to the breaking news of the day, what was that experience like for you? Was it as, I mean, I'm as, for the American people and for Scott as later on, it was just frustrating as all get out. Yeah, following instructions didn't seem to be a strong suit here, um, and especially for somebody representing teachers. If she was on the other side of that, wouldn't she be extremely frustrated with that? And I preempted that, too, by the way, with, you know, I know you may want to go on and on, but, you know, I just want you to answer yes or no. I'm not trying to be rude. That's all I want. And so you you see the the wordsmithing going on through throughout the, in, the entire hearing with her. Yeah, but we did learn a lot during that hearing from her, some things that we didn't know that really came forward. And when she told us that she was in contact with the Biden transition team um, before they were sworn into office, I found that to be interesting. But then I'm not totally surprised because if you look at, at the donations that uh, the teachers union makes to Democrats, um, that's not a real big surprise. But also what came out, and Debbie Lesko did a great job of bringing this out, is that she had Director Walensky's you know, personal phone number. And as Debbie Walensky said, I, I'm on two committees that deal with the CDC and I don't have her phone number. Maybe I'll get it someday. What was and so. That, that got the ball rolling, and so we've been seeking more information out of the teachers' union. They're complaining that we're wanting more information. They, thought, they, they suggest that it's done just because we had the one hearing. No, that was just the beginning, and she opened the door for us to one other information, and I'm curious about communications between the Biden transition team and, for that matter, the White House once Biden was in office uh, and the CDC as it related to the teachers' union's demands, if you will, or requests. The AFT first engaged the CDC, or did the CDC reach out to you? So what essentially happened, sir, was that we were talking to the Biden transition team before he was sworn into office. Okay. And we... Did they reach out to you? Yes, the they reached out. No, the Biden transition team reached out to us. Okay. And did that include the next CDC director? Um, not... Or anybody who went to work for CDC? I don't, I, you know something, I'm sh 
I, I don't want to speculate. I, I, there were lots of meetings with lots of people Fair on enough. Zooms. Fair enough. I, so I, get, I don't know. I, I get that. I just don't know. I, I understand that. What was stunning to me in both the work you've done on Randy Weingarten and then in my interaction with her on CNN was the, the, the attempts to obfuscate the word salad, the circular sentences, you know, the filibustering of very simple questions. I mean, this is not a person, in my opinion, who has any interest whatsoever in reflecting on her role in all of this and in, in going back in time and reconstructing this so we don't make the same mistakes again. And, you know, I watched her on a, you know, live television lie through her teeth to the American people about her role in all this. And I watched her sit in front of Congress and, in my opinion, lie uh, uh, and, and evade your questions. What do you think it says about our system right now that someone this powerful, who's not a government official, had apparently so much influence over government policymaking in a way that affected millions upon millions of parents and children. I'm astonished by the whole thing. Yeah, you know, this is definitely a political organization, and they're very effective with one side of the aisle for certain. You know, I can remember on Ways and Means Committee, we passed the SECURE Act, which part of the SECURE Act, and we did this bipartisan, was allowing children with disabilities and homeschooling to use 529 funds, funds that you use for your children's education. And uh, we had to take that out uh, under what I believe was to be Pelosi's demand uh, because the teachers union didn't like it. So that gives you some idea or gave me some idea of the influence that they have over the Democrat Party. And in this case, uh, it's not that they had influence. It's just also we didn't see really anywhere where they were stressing that what they do is important and it was important for America and it was important for the kids to be in school and that uh, they were looking for ways to close the schools. One of the in internal memos said that they were trying to find a trigger to close the schools when they wanted mitigations. You know, they wanted to be vaccinated first before they would go back. And as a nation, we did that. That didn't get them back to school. And all the while we see what other countries are doing and we saw what take Catholic and private schools were doing. My kids were in school. My kids were in school safely, and we weren't worried about it. But somehow they, they managed to keep schools closed. And I think it's extremely interesting to see Lori Lightfoot of Chicago pass condemnation upon the actions of the teachers union as well. What, what is interesting to me is, you know, I think America and Americans are, are typically full of grace. You can, you know, we had an unusual situation no one knew for a period of time what was happening. I think eventually we did know we could open the schools, and I'll, I, and people were still fighting against it. But there was a period of chaos there where folks didn't really know. And so I, I do think people, uh, when you have high responsibility, you can get some grace as long as you're willing to say, this was a mistake, we shouldn't have done that. In retrospect, we should have done this. We're learning, you know, like a little humility. But when I talked to her on television the other night, there was no humility. There was no reflection. There was no remorse. There was no indication whatsoever uh, that she wanted to uh, apologize to parents or even learn from what she had done. What I did sense was somebody who wants to rewrite history to cover up what she did. And I think that's what she's doing to the Congress. And I guess it's why you're having to threaten this subpoena because she's trying to set up now a, a, a rewriting of how this went down because she doesn't want to be, you know, remembered as history's greatest monster, which is where I think she's currently headed. 
Uh, if you were doing everything in an altruistic fashion, you have no reason to hide anything. And right now they're not being cooperative. We're going back and forth with negotiations on information that we want, and we're, we're not getting it. Look, you're right what you said. At the very beginning, for everyone across the country, this, this virus was called novel for a reason. And people were making hypothetical uh, guesses, if you will, and rightfully so, you know, best possible medical decision they could make with the data that we had. And so there were reasons for us to say, let's just shut things down right now. But when we started to get data and we started to understand that kids were safe in schools and actually teachers were safer in schools than they were if they were out in the community, the community rates of transmission were higher. There was, there, it was extremely low within the schools. So the teachers would have been actually safer there. The kids would have been safer there. So were you looking out for the kids? Were you looking out for their education? I haven't seen anything suggest on how we're going to catch our kids up academically, especially in a system that was lagging behind to begin with. We said this, and I said this many times, this is an after action review, lessons learned. Look at the decisions that were made. Some of them were good, some of them were not. That doesn't mean there's blame like you were inferring there because we didn't know. But when we did know or when decisions didn't make sense, we want to hold people accountable as to why they made them. And were they made with a political motivation in mind? Were they made with a personal motivation in mind? These are the things that we're trying to determine and make sure that we have a system in place going forward. That if we have another pandemic, that we can predict it, we can prepare for it, we can protect ourselves and maybe prevent it. And that's going to take a very open system that really is honest with ourselves as we go forward. And that's what we're trying to do with this committee. And again, on April 26th, we saw you questioning Randy Weingarten during that committee hearing. As you pointed out before, several things that she said piqued your interest and led to more questions. But in the meantime, what you're saying to us today here on May 23rd and, and in your letter to the, the council for the AFT is that they are obstructing and that they are not cooperating with your, with your committee and you are then threatening a subpoena, correct? We are threatening it, and we've done all the right steps in my mind. And I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm working with lawyers, and you know, we're taking the steps to try and negotiate a good arrangement to get the information that we think we need and why we need it. Again, if we're going to be better in the future, we have to know what we did this time. And they're not giving us the information that we want, and we can always get it through a subpoena. So we are threatening that at this point, unfortunately. We didn't want to have to do that. Um, but, you know, there again, when you're just going through word salad, it's tough for us to get the truth. And uh, Scott, you did a great job on your interview with her. On, and I appreciated watching that um, because it was just one more way of, of giving her an opportunity, really, to speak to the truth. And it didn't happen. You know, I sensed when I was uh, confronting her on CNN that I might have been actually the first just sort of average parent she had encountered since all this happened. I mean, I got the real sense that she is in a bubble. You know, and she's surrounded by people who work at the union. She's surrounded by Democrat politicians. She's surrounded by liberal and progressive activists. But I got the suspicion that she had not been uh, chatting with too many parents who had to live through this, and uh, which is also stunning to me. Uh, you're the head of the teachers' union. You're supposed to be, and, I, and you're going to insert yourself into these massive public policy conversations. I just sense that she had not been talking to parents who are ultimately the ones that are affected by all this. Uh, and, and when I was watching her congressional testimony, I got the same feeling. Like she, it didn't strike, if, if you're going to put yourself in the middle of massive policy decision-making, 
you, I think you sort of have a responsibility to talk to the people that you're affecting. I, I don't sense she did any of that. Did you get that feeling from her? Well, I, I, I don't think she talked to anybody in my district as far as parents, uh, that's for sure. And when I'm out in my district and I see it firsthand, I mean, like I said, I'm fortunate. I've had my kids enrolled in Catholic school and they were in session. You know, it was one year a mask and then the next year without. And we saw a lot of people starting to go into Catholic schools and other private schools. My rural areas were much better about it. They were open. They did very little virtual. So it, it seems that it was just a certain group Group that really thought that this is the way that it should go. And look, parents in those arenas have been shut out on a lot of issues, uh, but I heard from them loud and clear when I got home. You know, something you just said has struck me as, I don't know how we're ever going to solve this, uh, but the uneven nature of it. You had some places that figured it out. You had some places that didn't. You had schools that were relatively near each other. You know, might have one school in, one school out, one school with masks one school without radically different policies. But it, what it created was a really uneven set of outcomes for, for different kids. Uh, and some of those kids might be living relatively close to each other. And I don't know. I just think I don't I just don't know if our society is prepared for the ripple effects of all this. I mean, some of the learning loss for a lot of these kids because they happen to go to the wrong school or they happen to be living in a place that was represented by the wrong politicians, it's really significant. It's going to have very negative, significant life outcomes for them. And I just I just don't know if people understand the magnitude of it yet. That's why your committee and what you're doing, I think, is so important, because I just don't think people were prepared for the truth, which is Randy Weingarten led the charge that is going to ultimately lead to massive negative life outcomes for millions of kids. And I don't I just don't think people get it yet, is my view. Well, you know, if you, if you look at it to the, the majority of people that were affected, the kids that were affected, you know, come from schools where they are generally low poverty, low and middle income families. And the idea of our public education is to give every American an opportunity to succeed, to succeed in America. And this put those that needed it the most, that need a good education the most, to break out of poverty, to advance in life, and to succeed, it took it away from them. And uh, that's exactly the opposite of why we have public education to begin with. But if public education can't fulfill the role and see what others are doing, it's a problem. You know, you look at some like the government agencies like CDC, they have the opportunity to look all around America. And for that matter, take a look at what was going all around the world and therefore put up best policies and good guidelines so that we could get kids back in school. And when you are just taking a guidelines from a union or some of your guidelines, which are very restrictive and make it more difficult for schools to be open, that's a problem. And, you know, if if the CDC, uh, you know, I think believe they had said that three feet was good enough distance. I, I think it was a teacher's union that said they wanted six feet. And so that makes it impossible to get into the classroom. So if you say, we just wanted safe mitigations, well, what were those mitigations based on? Where was the science on what you wanted? Other schools were doing three feet and doing just fine. So these are the things that are uh, mind boggling and, and unfortunate. And I think most of America is seeing it. You talked about that bubble that people live in, you know, at the end of the hearing, you know, you know the teachers union, <laughs> 
People, they came in the day before, checked out the room, counted how many seats are in the room and made sure they had teachers in there that were supportive of them. And at the end of the hearing, they're all applauding her as she walks out of the room. So they're very organized in, in, the, in the way that they maneuver. Um, but at the, at the same time, this was all, you know, there for America to see. As far as that revisionist history, it seems that re- revisionist history and that sensitivity to it was almost uh, was was going on even in the, in, the, in real time. In other words, at three feet to six feet, they were basically being able, they're trying to say we want schools open, but making every possible uh, you know rule that our re- requirement to get there impossible to meet. Let me ask you though about the CDC before we move on to gain of function and some other issues about COVID. What culpability do they have and how can they be held accountable to the fact that they allowed the AFT to have so much sway over what the governmental agency was doing in the first place? Well, we are seeking those communications between the AFT and CDC. And uh, it does have me very curious where the pressure was coming onto the CDC. Did the CDC just look at those guidelines and say, medically, those make a lot of sense. We're going to use them. Or was there any type of political pressure from somewhere else, maybe from the White House? I don't know. So we would like to see those types of, of communications. I mean, Dr. Walensky's a physician. She should be and should have been uh, looking at medical data and trying to make the best decisions for the, for the country with their guidelines. And we'll find out if she did or did not. Speaking of medical data, the other uh, one uh, testimony I wanted to ask you about was Dr. Redfield in front of your committee as well. Proponents of this research claim it may result in vaccines or maybe even stop a pandemic. Dr. Redfield, has gain-of-function created any life-saving vaccines or therapeutics to your knowledge? Not to my knowledge. Has gain-of-function stopped a pandemic in your opinion? No, on the contrary, I think it probably caused the greatest pandemic our world has seen. As a physician, as somebody who is seeking the truth now at this point, how confident are you that those kind of exchanges are going to ultimately lead to us figuring out what happened here? You know, I've sit on the Intelligence Committee, and uh, that gave me an opportunity to do a lot of looking at the origins of, of COVID. And it was interesting. When we went into lockdown, another doctor in Ohio called me, and he said, you know what? All my cases are canceled, so I'm just doing a lot of research. He was on the phone with infectious disease doctors in China, but we were looking for ways to treat people. What is going on inside people's bodies, and how can we treat them the best? But in that process... Uh, he found an article that he sent me that was from 2015 between Ralph Barrick in North Carolina and Dr. Zengli Shi in China that showed that they had the ability to create a chimera or a gain-of-function type of virus where you take two viruses and take parts from one, put it on the other, and make it more infectious. In this case, you know, we're talking about more infectious to humans. And so early on, we were like, what in the world is going on? And so that's why we started looking more into the origins, and then we're finding all these grants you know, that we're going to a coronavirus research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And, and so a lot of people, and I think Dr. Fauci tries to give different versions of what gain of function means, but to the average American, gain of function when it comes to creating a virus means making one that's more infectious. And we also found an article from 2012, uh, there was an interview with Dr. Fauci talking about gain of function research in the lab. And they said, well, aren't you worried that if it gets out of the lab, it could create a pandemic? And he's quoted in that article from 2012 as saying, well, I think the benefits outweigh the risk. And I'm paraphrasing, I think the benefits outweigh the risk. 
Uh, and I think the the chance of a lab leak are extremely rare. Well, he he may have thought that would be the way, the right way. And I think what he was thinking is if we can create a really bad virus and have a cure for it, well, then we'll be in great shape. Well, you know, we've we've certainly had that opportunity now. And uh, but but look at what's happened in in the process. And so I, we have to have a good hard look and try and and really outlaw gain of function research, especially us funding it with an adversary. You know, something about all this conversation we're having, whether it's the teachers union and their influence over uh, public policymaking that should be made by doctors and scientists, or whether it's, you know, our government being involved in gain-of-function research, and, you know, all, all this stuff we're now finding out, thanks to you and thanks to the Republicans in Congress. But, you know, back when this was all going on, there were people who were starting to ask questions about it. And what was stunning was how quickly the government and the tech companies and so just the media, this, you know, they all work together, colluded to move on anyone who even raised a question yeah. and said, hey, are, are we sure about this? Or how do we know this is the correct thing to do? You had people losing their social media accounts. Uh, you had people being censored. You had people being really driven out of the public square with ridicule and scorn. And now everything you're finding out, you know, some of the questions that were being raised at the time were absolutely right on. They were legitimate questions to be asked. What I'm worried about is what happens next time. You know, next time there's a pandemic or a public health emergency or anything like this, what what do you think you're going to see, you know, the, the institutions that we're supposed to trust do? Because now the public doesn't trust them anymore. I mean, we've seen a massive loss of trust because of the way they acted during this pandemic. You know, if we can if we can achieve one thing through all this, I would hope that we can get back to a system where people trust public health officials. But I, I have to tell you, back to the very beginning. And so, you know, I'm willing to to find fault with myself or others through this whole process. But I had said to Secretary Azar that, you know, America should be hearing from the doctors treating COVID patients, uh, not politicians and not somebody who's sitting in a lab and isn't out at bedside with patients. I compared it to, if you're old enough to remember Schwarzkopf during the Gulf War, he spoke to America every night and people trusted that figure and we needed that, I think, and we weren't getting that. And so we were getting people that were more aligned with politics. And it was an election year. You had Kamala Harris say, you know, if Trump makes the vaccine, I'm not taking it. You know, you had all this politics come into play. We've got to keep the government out of the doctor-patient relationship. And nothing was more egregious that as an example of that is the mandates for the vaccine. Look, we were pro-vaccine, especially for emergency use for those of the most vulnerable. People were dying everywhere. And it showed in the trials that it could save some lives, and especially for the vulnerable, and we knew who we were. We knew in the trials that you know people that got the vaccine still got COVID. These were all things we needed to consider. And if you have a politician come out and say, you gotta get the vaccine or you're gonna die, well, th those aren't facts. And so the, the wrong messages were just being delivered over and over and over again. And we have to show all that. But if we can get the government out of the doctor-patient relationship, what should have been happening in America is people should have been going to their doctor saying, do you think I need the vaccine? What does the data show? And I at high risk. Oh, and you know what? There's not a doctor in the world that can tell you if there's going to be other adverse effects from the 
vaccine five years from now, 10 years from now. You know, this could be another Agent Orange for all we know. You know, so we have to be honest with people. It seems to be safe by and large, but they're adverse events. And that's another thing I want to look into is our, is our adverse event tracking system reliable? Are people actually giving the right yeah. You know, you heard over and over again, if you know, if you were in a train wreck, but you had COVID, you died of COVID. Yeah. And so, you know, these numbers were, were not realistic, at least that people can trust. And, and we've got to do much, much better. And these are the things that we have to reveal and learn about what was done, figure out why they were done. And if they were done for the wrong reasons, we can't have that anymore. And that's for the national security of the country and the national health security of the country. It does strike me that for political reasons, data may have been manipulated in the way you just pointed out, the classification of how you know certain people died. And, and when I say manipulated, I mean manipulated to try to get a certain public response or a public outcome. And we've heard Fauci himself say at times he said things publicly that he didn't really believe because he was trying to uh, adjust the behavior of the American people. Do you believe, I mean, if something happened today, if we got into another pandemic today, what guarantees do the American people have that it's not going to happen again, that we're not going to see uh, manipulated data, that we're not going to have public health officials you know, trying to, to manipulate behavior? I, I, I think this is where people don't understand the precarious situation we're in. People have to trust the government, and you have to trust the public health institutions, and they don't. Do you believe that as a in the job you have now with this committee— you could you could keep the public health institutions on the rails. I, I I have my doubts just because of of how sinister it also it seems. Well, some of it may take some rebranding, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, if we're going to accomplish that, that's that's just uh, natural sometimes. Um, but you know, it's accountability and and also to have to answer to things. So uh, I look at as a soldier, the the military has a uniform code of military justice unethical is unlawful in the military. And if you do things unethical that violate what the standard should be, you end up going to jail in a lot of cases. That's the situation, whether it's morals or whatever, that's how it is in the military. In our agencies, we don't have that in place. We had a trust there that they would do the right thing, that they would be subject matter experts to guide America. And instead, you know, if they're becoming political institutions as well, then that trust will never be there. We have to break that down. You know, a lot of times people talk about term limits for member of Congress. And uh, since I've been here, when I first came here, I thought maybe that's a good idea. But then I realized if we're term limited, first of all, your constituents can term limit you. Secondly, if you're term limited, you lose good people very fast and good leaders a lot of times. Maybe we need to term limit the people that are in the agencies because because they're never elected and they sit there with tremendous amount of authority. And I think for a long time they have gotten away with whatever they wanted to do if they felt it was in the best interest either for their politics or for the country. You're on the Flyover Country podcast with Scott Jennings. That's the voice of Congressman Brad Winstrup of Ohio. He is playing an important role in the Congress right now in finding some answers in an after-action report on the coronavirus pandemic. Joe? Congressman, if, uh, and I know you can't speak to exactly everything you've heard in the Intelligence Committee, but if this coronavirus had originated in, let's say, Portugal or Kenya rather than China, do you think we'd have a a different conversation about what we would know about this today? Well, I would hope that anybody who participates in the World Health Organization is there for the benefit of all humankind. 
And I don't think that people came away with that feeling as it pertains to China. Uh, you know, they were telling President Trump one thing and then we're finding out just another. Uh, they had a commission, if you will, that they're relying on that they call the WHO China report. Well, that tells you right there, it's very skewed. Uh, when President Trump nominated people to be part of that, they rejected them. China shouldn't have the ability to reject who we want to be part of this process. And the only person they, they took was Peter Daszak, who was getting funding for coronavirus research in China. So, I mean, it, it, follow the money, uh, follow the motives, you, the breadcrumbs lead to certain places. And uh, there's a lot of things on intelligence committee that we hope to have declassified at some point so that all of America can see what we've seen. We have just a couple of minutes left with you, uh, Congresswoman Winstrup, and thank you for your time today. I did want to talk a little politics. It strikes me that the Republican majority in the House has exceeded all the expectations that the pundits and the media had for what was possible. I wanted to hear your thoughts on the unity inside the Republican conference, how Kevin McCarthy has been dealing with Biden overall, uh, what you think you've been able to accomplish so far, and then maybe what that portends for the 2024 election cycle. Republicans will try to take back the White House. There's a really good chance the party could take back the U.S. Senate and maybe hold the House. There could be, in a short period of time, unified Republican government. Where are we, state of Republican Party politics, as we head to 2024? Well, you know, I hope that if we just continue to do the right things and do common sense things, that America is going to pay attention to that. Look, everyone was affected uh, by the pandemic. Everyone is being affected by inflation. And I think they're starting to understand why this has happened. You know, if you look at back at what we passed, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, more people working than ever before, wages going up, minorities and women. And, uh, you know, that led to no inversions. No companies were leaving America. So we were doing better with jobs. And they're doing just the opposite. They're now incentivizing people at a time when our supply chain is really in great danger. Uh, that we're incentivizing really other people to go offshore when you start raising taxes and doing things like that. We have to be out there competing. That's the message. And I think uh, when people lose their jobs, they start to understand that. And, and we can do a whole lot more. And you look at our supply chain. To me, that's one of our greatest risks. And I'll just go to medicine as one example. If China were to cut off natural, the uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients and the generics that they make, if they cut us off in two months, our shelves are empty. That is a huge health risk and national security risk to the United States of America. And I don't hear the White House recognizing it and wanting to do anything about it. But we're trying and we're discussing it. But they're going in just the opposite direction, unfortunately. We have 30 seconds left with you on your own, uh, your hard stop there. As far as, for instance, like the, the Kentucky governor's race, where we have a situation where some revisionist history might be going on there with COVID shutdowns. Do you think... The people who shut down this country and shut down education and shut down churches, do you think they will be held accountable by voters? I really think that they should be. I hope that they will be. You know, politics surprises me a lot of times. Um, but but my gosh, what more do you need to see uh, than what you, Kentucky is a great example. What more do you need to see? You know, your, your churches were closed, uh, but your schools were closed, but your liquor store was open. I'm sorry. You know, people got to pay attention to these types of things. And I think deep down, uh, Americans understand what's important in their lives. And I think there's more of an emphasis 
on uh, family and religion and productivity than people might realize. That's Congressman Brad Winstrip, elected in 2012 to represent the people of Ohio's 2nd Congressional District. He's a doctor. He's an Army Reserve officer. He fought in the Iraq War. He's been a small business owner. He is he has and is rendering great service to the people of his district, Ohio, and all of the United States. Congressman, thank you for what you're doing to bring accountability to these people who led us down some bad, bad roads during the coronavirus pandemic. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.